Hello and welcome to the next episode of Downboard Game Lane. I'm your host Andrew and in this episode is going to be a little briefer as we continue down our top 100 games of all time. But before we do that, as mentioned, next week we'll be finally into the top 10 and my wife will be on as a co-host and guest star talking about her top 10 as well. Also, the week after that, the 16th, we plan on doing a little new segment. I got a request in talking about all the different mechanisms of board games, breaking down all of them, because when I say something is a tableau builder, a deck builder, worker placement, dice manipulation, what does all of that mean? I think it's a very good idea, so everybody's at a common ground. And that episode will probably take two or three parts, but we'll do the best we can to categorize and get all the information of all the major mechanisms there are in board games. So, look forward to that. But, let's dive right into our top 100 games, starting with now number 20. Number 20 came out in 2020. It is Nidavellir. Nidavellir is a game for two to five players. Plays about 45 minutes. Age is 10 and up. Designer is Serge Leggett. Artist is John Minguez. And publisher is Gree Games. Nidavellir, the dwarf kingdom, is threatened by the dragon Fafnir. As a vulnerable Elveland, you've been appointed by the king. You must search through every tavern in the kingdom and hire the most skillful dwarves, recruit the most prestigious heroes, and build the best battalion you can to defeat your enemy. That's just the thematic overview. But, and really, in each turn in Nidavellir, you're going to bid a coin, a coin on each tavern. And in descending order of those coins, players will choose a character and add it to your army. Each dwarf has his own class that will score in a unique way. Blacksmith, hunter, warrior, explorer, miner. Pretty much just say green, blue, red, purple, and orange. A meticulous recruitment will allow you to attract powerful hero to your army. And be, you'll also be able to increase the value of your gold coins thanks to a coin building system to go against other players. This game really does not have much of a theme. I mean, the Dwarven theme comes through, but really you can reskin it with anything you want. But you're going into these three taverns. Each tavern will have a number of Dwarves, depending on the number of players. And then you have coins. Everybody starts off with the same five coins. A five, a four, a three, a two, and a zero exchange coin. These coins are your bidding power. They're also worth the face value of victory points at the end of the game. So you go to a tavern and you place a five. Well, chances are everybody's sort of saying you'll win that, but there are some tiebreakers because the chances of people playing the same number do happen. But from there, you resolve tiebreakers, and the person with the highest coin value from there will pick the first dwarf. And these dwarves will score in very unique ways. While the blues are going to be straight points, the greens might be squared, like 3 squared would be 9 points, 4 squared 16. Your uh, orange are going to be multipliers times banners. Some orange dwarves might give you 1 or 2 points, but you multiply it by the number that you have. So they all score in viable ways, and if you end up being diversified and get all different types of dwarves, you'll be able to recruit a hero which does even more stuff. But the kicker in this game is there is a max of a 25-point value coin, and there's only one of them. 
So with that zero coin, you are almost guaranteed when you're playing it to get the last pick of dwarf, but you get to exchange the two other coins that you did not use out of the three taverns. And those will add together. You'll take the coin value and get rid of your highest coin out of the two. So you're constantly getting better coins, which are worth victory points, but also increasing your bidding power in the game. And it's very, very cool because almost always you're going to trade in coins in one of the taverns. So you all have to decide which tavern am I willing to lose. I can see that there's going to be three purple and, an, and a red there. So, I mean, chances are I'm going to get a purple anyway, so I'll put the zero there. But everybody else may think the same thing. So it becomes maybe if I had the tiebreaker at the time, I can sneak in and get that one red because I really need it. But everybody else is probably going to be thinking the same thing. Very, very cool game. Simple, and I like the fact that me and Lacey's upgrades are so the coins are shiny and get a little bit more thematic approach to the game. Uh, very, very fun game. My number 20, Nidavellir. 19 came out also in 2020. It is Honeybuzz. Honeybuzz is one to four players, plays in about 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Ages 10 and up, designers Paul Solomon, artist is Anne Heisek, and publishers Elf Creek Games. Well, they finally did it. The bees have discovered economics, and the queen believes that if they sell honey to the bears and badgers and woodland creatures, they'll finally find peace and prosperity. So when spring arrives, it's time to build up the hive, find nectar, make money, and for the first time ever, set up a shop. So... Honeybuzz is essentially a worker bee placement game where players will expand a personal beehive by drafting various honeycomb tiles that grant actions that are triggered throughout the game. Each tile represents a different action you can do. Whenever a tile is laid so that it completes a certain pattern, a ring of actions is triggered and in whatever order a player chooses. So that can be gaining new bees, gaining money, having a decree from the queen to sell your honey or make orders for the bear so he doesn't come and attack your hive and take the honey forcibly. A tile drafted on a turn could trigger up to three times at any point during the game because as you're placing these double-sided hex, so it's just two connected six hexes. So it's pretty lengthy, but you're trying to configure them into a hex themselves. So they potentially could trigger up to three times because if you complete a honeycomb, a hex, all the abilities that you have in that hex will activate. And then depending on how you fill that hex, they'll have different inner walls or thinner walls in a honeycomb which grants you to be able to produce certain type of honey, whether it be like wildflower honey or uh, amber honey. And it all depends on how a player will place their meeple, or in this case their bee meeple, beeple, and how they build their hive will depend on the stuff that they can do. I mean, after all, in the honey business, efficiency is queen, <laughs> pun. So as you continually explain, Expand your hive, you'll forage for nectar and honey, you'll nectar and pollen to make honey, you'll sell the different varieties of honey you're able to make at the market, host honey tastings, and attend to the queen and their court. 
in this game though because nature is a very vicious cycle there's only so much nectar to go around so finding it will not be as easy so you'll have to make best use of your hive to build it the way that can sustain different types of honey and be one of the first players to find it out in the field by paying attention to where other players search deduce the locations of nectar and get there before anybody else very cool game cute game i mean it's one of those games where you look at it and it's very simple you place a bee to take an action or you get back all your bees so you can do actions later so those are the only two things you're doing the entire game but once you place a bee out to get more tiles to get more honey you're doing all these extraordinary things with it building this ecosystem as you will within your hive you're laying out this building plans there's goals that everybody working on like who can have the longest hive and make it work or whoever can have the most sane type of honey compared to everybody else or whoever can sell the most sets of honey to bears or badgers or if you want to you can ignore all those stuff and sell honey without with just market price you can just there is an economic system saying wildflower honey is worth 10 coins which are going to be your victory points and if i manage to get three wildflower honey why don't i just sell it for 30 and then drop the market because guess what people are happy supply and demand but it's not that thinky you don't feel burdened by these decisions of these up and down markets and prices of honey while it's so cute and your bees are going through making other bees and collecting pollen it is a fabulous game very well done by elf creek games highly recommend my number 19 honey buzz moving on to 18 came out in 2021 I suspect that this one's going to be on my wife's top 10, but we'll soon see. It is a game called Meadow. Meadow is a game for one to four players. It plays in about an hour to an hour and a half, ages 10 and up. Designer is Clemens Kalik. Artist is Carolina Kajik. And publisher is Rebel Studio. So Meadow is an engaging set collection game with over 200 unique cards containing hand-painted watercolor illustrations. It is a beautiful game to look at. So in this game, players take the role of explorers competing for the title of the most skilled nature observer. To win, they collect cards with the most valuable species, landscapes, and discovery and memories. Their journey is led by passion and curiosity of the world, and acquiring mind and desire to discover the mysteries of nature itself. So the competition continues at a bonfire where players will will race to fulfill goals of adventurers, aka if you saw a, a coyote and a uh, insect in the same route, well, that's a goal. Or maybe you found a house with a fox near it, that's a goal. So in this medium-weight game, you'll take turns placing path tokens on one of two boards. Placing a token on the main board will allow you to get these cards. These cards will have a variety of meeting requirements and things they can do. So you might be able to find yourself soil. Well, you found some 
brown soil or mineral soil or sand well in that sand maybe later on you found in that sand a scorpion or something like that so it, it needs to live in the sand so guess what you found sand so now you found where it inhabits so you're finding other cards to inhabit that you're exploring deep in that sand that you found the animals well right next door maybe you had a house so maybe next to sand you found this house what else are you seeing around this house? Maybe you found a fence that you're building around it. Well, that's cool. And then across the way, you found a fox. Well, that fox is very cool because it also needs the land to live on, but it also requires in its ecosystem an animal for its food. So unfortunately, maybe you found a little bunny rabbit that's unfortunately became food. So this ecosystem of nature and discovery that you're constantly finding in this game, that you're taking your your time on this journey, this walk, if you will, to build out the most scenic profile you can with animals and cards, it's very relaxing. What's very cool about this game, it also includes envelopes with additional cards that open up at seven times a year, like the first winter, the first spring, or uh, maybe during the first snow, which will include different variety of cards as well. So... The replayability here I really like. It's a calming game. It's not overly complex, but it can be very crucial because there's only certain ways to get the cards. And you may really need a card, but all of your options are exhausted. But still, nonetheless, a very wonderful game. Highly recommend my 18, Meadow. 17. 17's one of the first few games I've ever played, one that I really fell in love with, came out in 2014, it's Black Fleet. Black Fleet is only for three or four players. It contradicts what I play at generally two or three, or even solo at times, it is for three or four players. It plays in about an hour, ages 14 up, designer is Sebastian Blystale. Artist is Dennis Zilber, and publisher is Space Cowboys. So in this game, there are pirates, merchants, and even the occasional captain of a navy ship, all seeking glory and fortune on the Caribbean seas. So this is a tactical card-driven board game where you're in command of three different types of ships. The pirates, a pirate ship, the mer merchant ship, and the navy ships. So... Your merchant ship earns to seek you money while conveying goods from one port to another. Your pirate ship you control by attacking and stealing goods from other merchant ships and burying them on islands. While everybody controls the navy, earns you victory points and money by sinking other players' pirate ships. With your not always honestly won money, you will improve your ships and by buying advancement cards, giving you powerful abilities that no one else will have. This game on the concept is simple. Your merchants cannot attack anybody. Your pirate ships have to attack other merchant ships, and navy ships can only attack pirate ships. Your merchant ships can only deliver points and goods from one port to another to gain the point. That is the simple rules, but the game ends after you buy four upgrades and trigger the last card. These upgrades are where this game comes from. Fun to fantastic and chaotic. So, what happens? These cards that you buy on varying degrees of money let you break the rules. 
everybody has four opportunities to break a rules in their favor, doing things that you're not allowed to do, but only you can do, which makes it so fun. Okay, so the rule of Navy ships are only allowed to sink pirates because of the justice of the sea. Well, maybe I just turned the card that my Navy ships can rob other merchants because we are no longer honest in helping everybody. So now it's like, okay, well, now I can't surround merchant ships with Navy because I'll just take everything from every person around me. That's not good. Well, maybe you have a ship where your pirates are now part of this Pirates of the Caribbean uh, Black Pearl ships where they come in and out of the fog and can kind of teleport in and out of pirate islands at will. Well, now you got to be conscientious to where these spots are on the board because they can come in and out at any time. Or maybe your merchant ship can now move double the speed of any other. So you got to be worried about this person getting to ports a lot faster to get money. And that's just a few of the different things that you can do with these cards, breaking the game in variables of one way or another. Oh, it's just so fun. So much fun. I wish that this was could be played a two-player but unfortunately the only way to do it is play double-handed and it's just not as fun as three or four but i absolutely adore this game it would be in my top 10 100 if i could readily accessibly play this at a two-player game so so much fun highly recommend my 17 black fleet Alright, moving on to 16. 16 came out also in 2014. It is Abyss. Abyss is for 2-4 to four players. Plays in about 45 minutes to an hour. Ages 14 up. Designer is Bruno Catala. Charles Xavier. Artist is Javier Colette. And publisher is Bombix. So, the Abyss power is once again vacant. Well, what does that mean? The King of the Sea. His power is vacant again, and time's come to get your hand on the throne and its privileges. Use all of your cunning to win or buy votes in the Council of the Sea. Recruit the influential lords and abuse their power to take control of territories. And finally, impose yourself as the only one able to rule the abyssal people by defending its reefs. Abyss is a game of development combination and collection where players try to take control of strategic locations in an underwater city how do you do this well players develop on three levels they collect allies like uh, sea sea creatures octopuses crabs all these underwater sea uh, things that you find and using them to recruit lords so maybe actual more developed crab people or seahorse or uh, octopi people by recruiting these lords you'll grant also access to different parts of the underwater kingdom where you'll get advantages and drafts of sorts so the lords of the abyss acquired on these cards will grant you unique and special abilities as well throughout the entire game so it's a game where you acquire cards you use the locations but if you use them to gain locations, your abilities are shut off because they've already let you into their homeland. You don't need them anymore. Players need to take their time to grab the lords that they think they can help us, but also in a way before they lose interest to other people. Because on this centralized board, you have all the councils of the different sea folk. Over time, the influence will grow stronger 
depending on how many turns have passed. So you can vie for vote of the council. Then you can recruit different lords of the council. And at the end, whoever has over, I think, seven or eight lords will trigger the end game, and most points will win. It is a very, very cool game. And the fact that, regardless of what you do, is not necessarily a wrong thing. Everything's worth points. Everything is a viable strategy, but is your strategy a little better than somebody else? That is the question in the game. And the theme of these underwater utopia, kind of a dark, not necessarily dark as far as like something sinister, but it's not as bright and vibrant. You actually see like the dark blues in the car and the scenery. I just like the overall theme of the game. I think the looks are nice of it, and that's why it's my number 16 abyss. 15. One of my wife's most hated games came out in 2016. It is Inish. Inish is for two to four players, plays in about an hour to an hour and a half. Ages 14 up, designers Christian Martinez, artist is Dimitri Bilek, and publisher is Matigo. Well, Inish is a game deeply rooted in Celtic history and lore where players win by being elected kings of the island, Inish. Players try to achieve one of three different victory conditions in this game. So, leadership, be a leader, have more clan figures than any other players. You have land, be present in six different territories. Or, have your clans been present in territories, collected at least six sanctuaries. So, have you housed sanctuaries for people. Over the course of the game, players will also earn deeds, typically chanted by the bard or engraved by master crafters, that reduce the total for one of six conditions. While one victory condition is enough to claim the title of the king, a game of experienced players usually have a tight balance of power, emphasizing leadership all throughout Ireland. So this game at two players is very tactical, because at the start of each round, players will draft a hand of four action cards. 13 for three, and 17 for four. I think it's like 12 and a two. So during the assembly, actions cards do not be played at the end of the season or held to the next. You have a choice. Do you play cards for their abilities? Do you hold on to them in case there's an outbreak in a fight of civil nature? Because you can't carry anything over. So you have assembly cards that relocate your troops. You can explore new lands and territory. You can gain influence. You can build sanctuaries for your people. All these cards giving you all this control of this ever-exploring land. And in a two-player game specifically, which is why my wife doesn't like it, you know exactly which cards your opponent has because you don't have them. You know exactly what they have because you do not have them, with the exception of one card that is dealt randomly out to make it an even six and six. You know. So throughout everything that they play, you know exactly what they may or may not do, how they will respond, how will they try to entroach your land. Do I gain this land that has ongoing benefits because it's better for me, or do I take it from my opponent because it benefits them and I cannot let them keep exploiting that? Very careful drafting, hand management, and occasionally bluffing because in this turn, the whole round ends once everybody passes, but it has to be a consensus on pass. So you can pass 
and if your opponent automatically plays a card, you're not done for the round. You come back in, and you can keep passing and passing and passing. But as soon as both of you say pass, that's when the round ends. So you can pass. Your opponent can play a card. You can pass again. You, they can do other things. But you're letting them see what they're doing, and then you're right back in there. They think you're done, but you had cards. You're not done. You wanted to see what they're doing. But you had to leave yourself in a particular situation because if you want to pass and they pass, then you just ruined your entire turn and you have to redraft cards. It is such a great game, in my opinion, because of this vying control, variability. Every game is different. I understand why my wife does not like it. She actually enjoys this game at a higher player count because... She's not the only target. And in a two-player head-to-head game like this, you can really be made feel lower than low at some points in this game. But it is my 15. I recommend it Inish. 14 came out in 2018, and I'm including all versions of this game, Dice Throne. Dice Throne is for two two to six players, Really, it's a two-player head-to-head game. It's played in about 20 to 30 minutes, ages 8 and up. Designers Manny Tremblay and Nate Chadler. Manny Tremblay also was the artist and is published by Roxley Games. So, Dice Throne is a battle Yahtzee game. You select a hero that plays and feels completely distinct from one another. They have a Marvel version now, so you can do Doctor Strange versus Spider-Man, or you can do in the base game, you can do a Barbarian versus a Pirate, an Artificer versus an Elf. You can do a, uh, let's see, what else ones? A Paladin uh, versus a Monk. You are Yahtzee battling each other. You are rolling Five dice that are completely unique face for your character. Still having the one through six on it, but the symbols are going to be different on each side of the face. And depending on how you roll them, either in straights or the number sets, will grant you different actions to be able to attack your opponent, defend incoming, healing yourself, preparing, playing cards. This game is a wonderful dice-chucking good time. Something you don't take seriously, but it's always great because, guess what? You can still roll that Yahtzee, but it's tactical. And when you do, you end up end up doing a lot of damage and possibly winning the game. You're very involved on other players' turn because, not like a normal Yahtzee, they're just going to sit in the corner, roll up points, and they're done. And, oh, my turn, I'll roll. No, because what they do directly affects you. So it is such a fantastic game. I recommend... Dice Throne a lot, especially if you just want a nice, simple two-player game that's not too hard, rolling dice that you don't have to take too seriously or think much about. Dice Throne, my number 14. We're up to number 13. Came out 2022. It is Tidal Blades Banner Festival. Tidal Blades Banner Festival is a game for two to five players, plays in about 30 minutes to 45 minutes, ages 8 and up. Designer is J.B. Howell and Michael Malasik. Artist is Lena Cosette. And publisher is Druid City Games and Lucky Duck Games. So, what happens? Flags of all color dance in the wind as the Navarians converge for the long-awaited Banner Festival. 
Generate the most profits for your trading house by selling goods, befriending the right suppliers, and making bets on the watercraft raids. Opportunities abound in a floating market where only the keenest trader will prevail. This is a trick-taking area control-esque game where on each turn you aim to play a trick of a card, either the highest, mid, or lowest rank suit doing different things. If you played any trick-taking game, heart, spade, juker, hand and foot, regardless of what it is, pitch, pinnacle, you will understand the concept of a trick-taking game where somebody leads a suit and you follow it. Doesn't matter in this game. Not at all. Green might be the highest color suit in this game, but you can play any card you absolutely want. And depending on where you fall in the category of the highest card in the middle of the row or the very lowest card, you get a benefit. You get a benefit regardless of what it is, and it's always good. If you get the highest card, guess what? You get to move around the racetrack. Your racer is winning. If you lap it a few times, you get victory points. The more times you lap it, the more victory points you get. You're in the middle, guess what? You get your banner up in the bleachers. You get to praise your racer. You get to support him. And guess what? If you have the most banners in a stadium on a particular side, you get victory points. And if you're the lowest person, you get the card's effects, which can be gaining banners, gaining victory points, gaining fruit to sell which is all worth 50 points. There is not a bad decision in this game regardless of what you do. And all set in the glorious world of Tidal Blades created by Mr. Cuttington. This universe of Tidal Blades, absolutely beautiful to look at. Wonderful. I absolutely adore this universe, the look, the feel of this game. And trick-taking always has a soft place in my heart. Played it growing up. Loved playing hearts and spades. It's one of those things that I absolutely love. So it's one that I highly recommend. Tidal Blades Banner Festival. Moving on to number 12. Number 12. One of the first games I was able to play with with my wife. Has a near spot dear near to my heart. Disney Villainous came out in 2018. Two to six players. We play it at two. Great at all player counts. Man, probably wouldn't play it at five or six. Gets a little too long. Two to four range though. Wonderful. In about an hour. Ages 10 and up. Designer is Prospero Hall. There's no artist because a lot of the works come from a lot of the Disney shows and movies. Uh, but the publisher is Ravensburger. So in Villainous... Each player takes the role of a Disney villain in a different movie. You can be Scar from Lion King. You can be Cruella de Vil in the 101 Dalmatians. You can be Pete from Steamboat Willie, Mother Gothel from Tangle, Yzma from Emperor's New Groove. And you'll have your own unique cards, deck, player board, and a 3D character. Your whole goal in this game is to complete your objective, your will, and your universe before another villain. Captain Hook might be finally defeating Peter Pan. That is your goal. So you got to go through. you got to find Peter Pan, and you got to vanquish him. Well, Prince John, you might have to acquire all the wealth of the land. You finally got every bit of coin from everybody. You finally got that, so that's what makes you happy. 
you're going to be ended up moving your character, playing cards, getting allies, succumbing to the normal fates of the universe and having those pesky heroes on your back that you got to deal with time and turn after again. And every person feels different. The setup of the game is the same, but Scar will play very differently than Hades. Hades will play very different from the Queen of Hearts. It is such a unique theme. Everybody wants to play the hero, but in this game you help the villains. And if you still have that love of Disney or animated adventure, it's just so wonderful. We have every expansion. Now you can play Syndrome from the Incredibles. That is just cool. Underrated villain. It's just a great, great, great game. Especially if you can get them all. So much variety. So fun. My number 12, Disney Villainous. Alright, number 11. Last game of this podcast came out in 2022. Caesar's Empire. For two to five players. Plays in 30 minutes to an hour. Ages 10 and up. Designer is Matthew Podvon. Artist is Alexandre Bonvalant, and publisher is Holy Grail Games. Caesar's Empire, two to five player game about building roads for the glory of Rome. It's set in the world of the comic series Asterix, but with the Julius Caesar theme. However, instead of playing as one of the gals this time around, you'll be siding with, of course, Julius Caesar. As a member of Entourage, you've been tasked to expanding the the kingdom to its absolute limits. The one who will bring the most glory to Rome will be richly rewarded and win the game. It's a simple game where you build roads and connect Rome to new cities across the board. Each time you build a road, you score points. Each new city you reach will provide city and treasure tokens that will be worth points at the end of the game. The game ends when, every, when Rome is connected to every city on the board. After adding the value of city and treasure tokens to the points during the game, the player with the most wins. But such a simple game that uses network building as a mechanic. Each time you build a road, you must connect Rome to a new city by placing one or more of your roads pieces onto the game board. You may build a road anywhere you like on the board as long as you start from either Rome or a city who's already been connected back to, to Rome. That means you'll be continuing this long strand out of roads that are possibly started by other players. When you reach a city, you get to take its token, which will be worth victory points at the end of the game, but also provides a treasure. So the treasures that you find are added to your board, which again scores points by set collection. If you have one of the eight or nine different unique ones, you score the max amount of points. So... Once you've taken your city token, your treasure, you'll score your route back to Rome. So each section of road included in the route will score one point for the player it belongs to. So you can be sneaky and add your road to the end to collect the token that you really need. But if I did most of the work to that city, I put seven roads out. You just gave me seven victory points because I did the work and you got the benefit. So... It is so simple and tactical in this game, and even up to the max player count. It's such an easy game to teach, and I understand why people absolutely love it. So simple, a lot of decisions, vying for control, getting the city points and collections. It is 
absolutely a wonderful game. And that's why it is my number 11, Caesar's Empire. Alright, that's it. Top 20 done. Next week we get into my top 10 games of all time with my wife. And we'll get it published on Monday instead of a day late. I greatly apologize, but thank you for everybody your patience for this. Thank you for listening along. We'll see you next week. And have fun playing games. Bye.